Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello history friends, Zach Twomley here. Before we give you the latest episode of the Korean War, I wanted to drop some pretty exciting news on you. If you are subscribed to the newsletter, you will have found this out already, but if you are not, get a load of this. There's this thing called the Sound Education Podcast Conference. It's happening at Harvard University over the 2nd to the 3rd of November, and it's going to be attended by some of the best and brightest minds in podcasting not just history podcasting although dan carlin will be there which is a pretty big deal but also any kind of podcast that teaches you something hence the name sound education there will be panels of people giving would-be podcasters advice and there will be talks about different topics 
that you will certainly find interesting if you're interested in any way in learning about new things or just podcasting in general. You can get tickets to this by going to the Sound Education website, which I will link in the description of this episode and the next several episodes to come, because I'm going to it. I am going to go to the Sound Education Conference in Harvard University over the 2nd to the 3rd of November. In fact, because it's my birthday on the 30th of October, my wife and I are going to make a bit of a holiday out of it. So, that brings me to a very important question. Do you want to meet me? And are you in America and never thought you could? That's several questions wrapped up into one. But you get my meaning. I am coming to America. I didn't think this would happen. Certainly not in the current circumstances. But we decided to just go for it because it's a great opportunity. And at that stage, I'll have had my application into Cambridge University not Cambridge, Massachusetts, a different Cambridge, so it's very exciting indeed. I'll hopefully be networking and meeting with a lot of people, including hopefully Dan Carlin. I mean, come on, I'd love to meet the guy. And I could also be meeting you. There's so many people out there that have said, oh, Zach, next time you come to America, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I never go to America, sorry. But now I am, so you are now officially on notice. I will share this in all the relevant social media areas but yes, to those of you who are patrons, to those of you who are just history friends, are you around over the 2nd to the 3rd of November? Or furthermore, maybe you can't get to Harvard, but you're from the Boston area. If you are, by all means, let me know. The only thing I really know about Boston is that it's in Fallout 4 and everything is in Apocalypse. So there won't be any ghouls there and there won't be any nuclear fallout, but there will be lots of history friends. So I'm really looking forward to this. And if you are too make sure to email me or to let me know through the relevant media channels that you'd be interested in meeting up either by going to the Sound Education podcast conference or by just meeting me up with some other people. If we get enough people together, if I try and find a date and that kind of thing, then during the week that I'm there, perhaps we can all meet up together and have a history friend blowout. That'd be great. And I'm really looking forward to it. So yes, that's my news, basically. It's a pretty big deal. I'm very excited. And, well, kind of time to come back down to Earth with the latest episode of The Korean War. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all to the Korean War episode 34. In the last episode we looked at the complex strategic problems which all the major powers grappled with as each sought to manipulate the Korean War to their own ends. After some hesitating and merely reacting to events, Mao Zedong concluded that the best chance for the People's Republic of China to gain from the conflict would be to wait until the North Korean People's Army failed. Kim Il-sung's regime was most likely to fail once the landings at Incheon took place, an act which was the brainchild of General MacArthur, so he liked to say, but which in reality had been laid down by War Plan SL-17 in the months before. In anticipation of a naval landing, Mao built up a massive surplus in manpower along the Korean border. When the time was right to intervene and save Kim's regime, flipping it over to a Chinese satellite in the process, Mao would act. Yet the very act of moving his forces in such large numbers to the Korean border 
set off alarm bells in Washington. The Truman administration were not aware of Mao's plans or his timetable. All they knew was that a timely Chinese intervention before the Inchon landings had successfully concluded and established themselves would be disastrous. The solution, as we learned before, was to follow two policies. The first was to offer carrots to Mao in an effort to stall and placate him, and the second was to offer threats and to diplomatically outmaneuver him. Both of these strategies tended to revolve around the sensitive issue of Taiwan, where Mao's Chinese foe, Chiang Kai-shek, was hunkered down. The offer to submit the Taiwan question to the United Nations, but only after the North Korean situation had been dealt with, reflected the diplomatic approach that Washington adhered to. It was far from certain that Truman considered giving Taiwan away at all, but in the context of everything relying upon the Inchon landings, both to reverse the Korean military situation and to provide the conflict which would provide the necessary budgetary increases, no consideration could be off-limits. In this episode, then, we'll do our best to go between the complex diplomacy which build up towards the landings on the 15th of September. All the while, we'll be keeping our eye on Stalin and the communications that he had with the strained but still positive relationship of Kim Il-sung. As the final moments of the North Korean People's Army, military supremacy slowly ticked away. In fact, that is not a bad place to start. I will now take you to Pyongyang on the 28th of August, 1950. The Song of the Week this week is brought to you by 1956. When you listen to this, guys, I will in fact be in Malta. Why is that important? Well, I'm able to go on holidays because of when diplomacy fails. That's right, this podcast is helping to fund me to live and not just to work. All work and no play makes Zach a dull boy and all that jazz. But yes, I am working at this podcast as my job for the next year at least until things with Cambridge work out. Hopefully they will work out. If not, that's another story for another day. But yes, it's because of Patreon and because of series like 1956 that I am able to go on holiday. And in fact, because of series like 1956 that I'm able to afford to go to America for the Sound Education Podcast Conference on the 2nd to 3rd of November. All of these things, you might think that they are frivolous needless things for people to do, and maybe you think I should just sit at my desk 24-7. I sit there like 23-7. But if you would like to support this podcast, these 1956 ramblings get worse every time, but if you would like to support this podcast, Patreon is the best way to do it. And you should be very excited about 1956, because we are starting, right about now, the Suez Crisis. If you weren't aware, the Suez Crisis is one of the most ridiculous, tangled, confusing controversial things that happened in the 20th century. Okay, well, maybe not the whole 20th century, because you have those wars and stuff, but certainly in the Cold War. I'm trying to sell it as best as I can, but it's a very hard thing to describe. You have so many different interests flying around, and so many interesting characters that had to try their best to get what they wanted, with some fascinating results. I won't spoil anything else that happens in it, but if you are interested, for $5 a month, the same price as that sandwich you didn't really enjoy or that coffee that you felt you got ripped off by, you too could be enjoying this exclusive series, as well as all those exclusive series to come and the quality stuff that is already in that extra members feed. I won't say any more, guys, but I will just say patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. So the song of the week this week 
is You're a Grand Old Rag. It was released by Billy Murray. No, not Bill Murray. That's Billy Murray in 1906. So enjoy it, guys, and we will be back with episode 34 of the Korean War. It was with a complete disregard for the perils facing Kim Il-sung's regime that Stalin had a cable addressed to Pyongyang on the 28th of August. Few messages convey as much of a willful ignorance of the realities of the day as this communication did. Within less than three weeks, the hope of ending the war in North Korea's favour would appear impossible, and the Pusan perimeter would no longer contain the UN forces. Kim was far from ignorant of the strategic dangers he was in. He knew that his lines were torn up and far too overextended. He knew that much of the armoured thrust had been removed from his initial offensive, and he knew that the Pusan perimeter was proving a desperately tough nut for him to crack with his exhausted forces, as new UN reinforcements arrived every day. Kim also knew, much like Mao Zedong did, that an Allied counter-attack, probably in the form of a landing somewhere up the coast, was coming. What he did not know was that he had become a pawn in a wider game, a game which had been set in motion since January of that year, when Stalin first authorised him to attack the South. Now, in light of his less than inspiring performance to this point, Stalin sent some words of encouragement to his favourite pawn as he watched the net close in on the North Korean leader. Stalin told Kim not to be Embarrassed by the fact that he does not have solid successes in the war against the interventionists, that these successes are sometimes interrupted by delays in the advance or even by some local setbacks. In such a war, continuous successes do not occur. The Russians also did not have continuous successes during the Civil War, and even more during the war against Germany. Your greatest success is that Korea has now become the most popular country in the world. Korea is not alone now. It has allies who are rendering it and will render it aid. The position of Russia during the Anglo-French-American intervention in 1919 was several times worse than the position of the Korean comrades at the present time. 
Whether Kim read such messages while grinding his teeth or while praising Stalin for his help, we cannot be sure. But we know that several problems facing the North Korean People's Army were those of Stalin's making, and that Kim certainly knew this too. In the bizarre world of Stalinism, even those who would reason to hate your guts still returned your useless advice with a sickly gratitude, as did Kim Il-sung when he replied to this cable from Stalin that, We bring you, our dear teacher, gratitude for the warm sympathy and advice. In the decisive period of the struggle of the Korean people, we have received great moral support from you. Indeed, moral support was all that Stalin would offer. When he did offer up military advice, he did so with a detached superficiality so as to appear ludicrous, explaining that Kim should focus his air forces on specific targets and attack the front of the enemy advance to deliver decisive blows was useless and vague enough advice, considering the fact that by this point the UN had unquestioned air superiority to the extent that the North Korean People's Army could only travel by night, and the fact that the North Korean Air Force consisted of 19, that is, 1-9 fighters, the same group which had begun the war, it is likely that Stalin's advice received more of a grim chuckle from Kim than any serious consideration. But was Stalin telling the truth when he referred to other allies that the North could rely on? Such allies would only come out of the woodwork at the end of the Korean War, when the Democratic People's Republic of Korea would become subsumed into the Eurasian communist system. In spite of its isolationist image, the immediate post-war prospects for North Korea involved intense cooperation with Chinese as well as Soviet-led states. The key was that Kim was, by then, taking his political direction from Mao. But Stalin was correct about one thing. The war was making North Korea something of a talking point among the Soviet Union's members, largely because Stalin couldn't keep his mouth shut about the whole situation. In a stark and revealing letter to the Czech president, sent the day before Stalin's cable to Kim Il-sung, and which has been totally forgotten by most historians, Stalin explained why he had deliberately remained absent from the UN Security Council votes on the 25th and 27th of June. Why? Well, according to the historian Avram Agov, the reasoning was simple. It benefited Stalin to see the Chinese and Americans duke it out. Agov wrote, the extended conflict worked in favour of Soviet policy objectives, as long as the Soviet Union avoided a military confrontation with the Americans. In a cable to the Czechoslovak president, Clement Gottwald, on the 27th of August 1950, Stalin revealed that the USSR deliberately abstained from the critical United Nations vote that declared North Korea as an aggressor state. The Soviet aim was to get the Americans entangled in the military intervention in Korea. If North Korea began to lose the war, then China would come to the rescue, and Stalin calculated that America, as any other state, cannot cope with China having at its disposal large armed forces. Stalin believed that a prolonged war tied down American power and undermined America's position at home and abroad. Avram didn't go as far as saying that the proxy conflict between China and the United States would benefit the USSR politically as well, since it would alienate the PRC from the West owing to its public heavy involvement in the war, but we can deduce such facts for ourselves. What this extract here demonstrates is that Stalin was always planning with the bigger picture in mind. The day before he essentially told Kim that everything would be alright, he was cabling one of his Eastern European lackeys and telling them why he wanted to see North Korea lose, 
because it would bring about the Chinese intervention, which Mao had previously seemed so stubborn to contribute. Indeed, at the time that Stalin sent these cables in late August, neither Mao nor Truman wished to act against the other, because it wasn't yet the right time for such an escalation of the war. Three weeks later, though, these feelings, to Stalin's pleasant surprise, rapidly changed. We go back now to Washington, where the Truman administration reacted to the President's cable to the Secretary General of the UN that had been sent on the 25th of August. If you'll remember, within that cable, Truman had essentially laid out what the US was doing in Taiwan, and he urged all involved to focus on the North Korean question at hand, and claimed that Washington would submit the Taiwan situation to the United Nations after the Korean War. This commitment, whether a trial balloon, a delaying tactic, or a genuine declaration of American policy, took Truman's cabinet by surprise, and it drew some opposition from, in particular, the Secretary of Defence, Lewis Johnson, who in the past had objected to the valuing of Korea above that of Taiwan, since Taiwan seemed like a far more useful strategic position to have. In a speech to the Boston Naval Shipyard on the 25th of August, the Secretary of the Navy acted with Lewis Johnson's blessing to deliver a speech that called for a preventative war to compel cooperation for peace, as it was put. The United States, in the view of the Naval Secretary, should be willing to pay any price for a world at peace, and in his view, we have no choice other than to build our military power to the strength which will make it impossible for the enemy to overcome us, concluding that men of his generation must become the aggressors for peace. This collaboration by two of Truman's secretaries came hot on the heels of MacArthur's own weighing in on the Taiwan debate, where the Supreme Allied Commander had noted the importance of Taiwan and had denounced defeatism in the Pacific. These rhetorical counter-attacks against the President's carrot strategy to Beijing, at a time when placating Mao was critically important for the sake of the Inchon landings, had to be dealt with. The first matter was to order MacArthur to retract publicly what he had said. This, contrary to what we may have expected of MacArthur's character, the general did. However, Secretary of Defence Lewis Johnson had been meant to write to MacArthur and order him to retract what he had said, not the President. That Truman had been forced to draft the cable to his general came as a direct result of Lewis Johnson's fundamental disagreement with the President over how to proceed. No other series of events demonstrate how uninformed of the inner plots of the administration Johnson was than what happened next. Since he refused to follow orders, Truman asked for Lewis Johnson's resignation. At such a sensitive time, there could be no insubordination so close to home. Johnson lingered on and refused to sign the resignation letter, bursting into tears when Truman ordered him to do so. It wasn't a particularly glamorous way to go, but Johnson's crime had always been his passion for Taiwan, ever since the beginning of the Korean War, when the defence of that island seemed in jeopardy. The ironic thing, as we know, is that Truman largely agreed with Johnson, and he did not wish to lose this bastion in the Pacific, if at all possible. The problem, above all, was timing, and since the Defence Secretary seemed unwilling or unable to consider the diplomatic ramifications of his actions, he had to go. On the 12th of September 1950, Johnson was replaced by George Marshall, of the Marshall Plan fame, and the Truman administration prepared itself for what would happen next. 
On the 30th of August, Dean Acheson said bluntly in a press conference that The United States was trying to discourage the Chinese communists from entering the Korean War by making plain in every possible way that this government felt no hostility towards the Chinese and had no aggressive intentions in the Far East. The next day, Truman followed this up with a comment of his own on the situation, saying The Taiwan situation, as set out in my various messages, is one for settlement in the Japanese peace treaty with the allies who fought in the Japanese war and with those occupation forces by those nations that have occupying forces in Japan now. Of course, it will not be necessary to keep the 7th Fleet in the Taiwan Strait if the Korean thing is settled. That is a flank protection on our part for the UN forces. In a public radio address, Truman followed this up with a set of strong comments on the 1st of September. It was because of firm statements like these that historians point to America's lack of desire to fight the Chinese. Rarely, if ever, do they appreciate that these comments were made in the context of keeping the People's Republic of China at bay while the punch at Inchon was planned. On the 1st of September as well, as the final phase of the massed North Korean attack at the Pusan perimeter was launched, and while there was confidence that this line could be held, an immense sense of foreboding stalked the discussions of Chinese intervention. If the Chinese were going to intervene and throw the Allies into the sea, now would be the ideal time for them to do it. In his address, then, Truman sought to communicate his major points to both the American public and, of course, Mao Zedong. We believe, Truman said, the Koreans have a right to be free, independent and united, as they want to be. We do not want the fighting in Korea to expand into a general war. It will not spread unless communist imperialism draws other armies and governments into the fight of the aggressors against the United Nations. We hope in particular that the people of China will not be misled or forced into fighting against the United Nations and against the American people, who have always been and still are their friends. The communist imperialists are the only ones who can gain if China moves into this fight. We do not want Taiwan or any part of Asia for ourselves. We believe that the future of Taiwan should be settled peacefully, by international action, and not by the decisions of the United States or any other state alone. The mission of the 7th Fleet is to keep Taiwan out of the conflict. Our purpose is peace, not conquest. We do not believe in aggressive or preventative war. Such war is the weapon of dictators, not of free democratic countries like the United States. Hitler and the Japanese generals miscalculated badly ten years ago. Let would-be aggressors make no such mistake today. We want peace and we shall achieve it. By that date, on the 1st of September 1950, Truman would have been aware of the fruits of several days' worth of negotiation and discussion among the State Department and the British and French. In the last week of August, in the bid to please as many people as possible, a contradictory, somewhat bizarre report was produced. Flush with compromises, loopholes and illogical conclusions, We don't need to delve into it too much here, and I don't want to confuse you guys by throwing loads of names and terms and numbers about policies at you guys anyway. So, for the record, its name was NSC-81, and it underlined, among other things, the importance of securing support of the majority of UN members for any action that might be taken north of the 38th parallel, and added a note on... The advantage of establishing a record that will clearly show that every reasonable effort has been made to avoid carrying the military struggle into a new phase by a land offensive beyond the 38th parallel. According to NSC 81's phrasing, 
Final actions cannot be made at this time, since the course of action which will best advance the interest of the United States must be determined in light of the action or inaction of the Soviet Union and the Chinese Communists, and in consultation and agreement with friendly members of the United Nations. The major purpose of NSC 81 was to produce an image of unity, particularly among the Anglo-American bloc within the United Nations, since the British and their Commonwealth allies were imperative to the balance of agreement within the UN Security Council and General Assembly. For the sake of image, then, compromises and covering phrases were included. Note how the document ended with the classic cop-out mentioned above, which could be summarised as essentially meaning... This is what we want to do, but we will act according to our interests and the circumstances if we have to. In other words, if one looked harder, they could discern that the memorandum didn't really commit Washington to anything. Certainly, as we know, General MacArthur by no means felt restricted to stay behind the 38th parallel. As per the Truman administration's plans to draw the Chinese into the war, it was essential that MacArthur advanced beyond the limits which they had just agreed to. We'll see how such a decision to advance impacted America's relations with its allies in the future. NSC 81 proved useful not merely for making the world think that America was on the same page as its allies, but for making those same allies believe that Washington would not act against their desires. In actual fact, NSC 81 was, as one historian described it, a tactical manoeuvre. With the Inchon landings looming, by the 11th of September, Truman had already implemented some private tweaks to it so that he would have more wiggle room when the time came to make any decisions about the 38th parallel. For example, one change in the wording between different drafts of the memo swapped a phrase forbidding operations near the border with China with the forbidding of operations over that border. A critical distinction, considering how the military offensives against the North Korean People's Army were to progress. For the moment, though, the surface assurances would still be given to the Allies, since their cooperation, as MacArthur began his operations, was crucial for that operation's success. At its core, NSC-81 was a document that constrained MacArthur once he crossed the 38th parallel, and provided strategies for dealing with certain contingencies, such as open or covert Soviet-slash-Chinese involvement. Within these assurances, and wherein could be found the genuine desire of the Truman administration not to provoke a global conflict with either the Soviets or Chinese, sufficient qualifications had been inserted to ensure that, at the end of the day, the decision for action in North Korea lay with the president. When MacArthur attempted in subsequent months to escalate the situation and make the Korean War into a larger conflict, it was against the principles of NSC 81 and against the authority of President Truman implied in that document that he rebelled against, and that he was criticised for rebelling against. The fortnight before the Inchon landings thus contained crucial stepping stones towards the policy line which the United States would eventually adopt. On the 1st of September 1950, while Kim Il-sung threw everything he had into a last push against the Pusan perimeter, his insufficient reserves ensured that any breakthroughs which were made couldn't be exploited. The North Korean People's Army, as Kim, Stalin, Mao and General MacArthur now suspected, had finally run out of steam. It had taken a while, but with the ultimate failure to seize Pusan, the North Korean People's Army were trapped in the south with overextended supply lines and a lack of direction. On the 13th of September, General Walker informed his troops that he noted, 
signs of weakening of the North Koreans along the entire front and added that the time was rapidly approaching when the UN forces would take the offensive. The weakening probably had something to do with the now glaring disparity in numbers. Kim's forces numbered about 98,000 men, of which a third were conscripts, while the United Nations now held the Pusan perimeter with just under 250,000 men. The UN had the superiority in tanks, mortars, air support, artillery, naval support and, of course, manpower. Kim can't have been ignorant of these facts, yet his forces attacked once again. When the question of why is asked, conventional wisdom points to the idea that Kim had no choice and that by this point it was all he could do to launch one last push. Yet, looking a little closer, we can see a familiar hand in the operations. The suspicious aspects of the offensive, where the North Korean People's Army spread out their forces and attacked at five points rather than massed at one area, tells a story reminiscent of Stalin's deliberate sabotage and division of the North Korean offensive capabilities in the first three weeks of the war. Nothing important to the North Korean war effort was ever launched without Stalin's approval or control. Indeed, it seems highly likely then that Stalin, effectively controlling Kim's pursuit of the war, as the Chinese would do from December 1950, had ordered the attack on the Pusan perimeter, and deliberately botched it in an attempt to pave the way for the landings, which everyone knew was coming. The question of whether Kim Il-sung had been deliberately sabotaged by his Soviet ally was of no concern to General Douglas MacArthur. After several months of uninspiring military actions, here at last was the opportunity to launch a campaign which would claw back not just the Allied initiative in Korea, but also the general's waning mystique. It is quite possible that Mao had already pinpointed the date and location for the Incheon landings by the time MacArthur's force set sail. All that Mao Zedong really had to do after all was consult a map and consult those in his circle with knowledge of Korean tidal patterns. Specific though this may sound, such people were not that hard to find. On the 15th of September and the 23rd of October, the tides were suitable to support any kind of amphibious landing craft around the Incheon port area. Deploying at any other point would risk seeing his men become stuck in the low tides and mud on the seabed, where they would be sitting ducks. Covered in mud, they would then have to lumber heavily over the large seawall which protected Incheon from just such an operation as this. The small window of opportunity to act with all of their powers at Incheon, literally they could act on one of two days, the 15th of September or the 23rd of October, and the resulting predictability this applied to the whole operation at Incheon understandably unnerved MacArthur's peers, who famously argued for a different landing owing to a number of flaws in the plan. Yet while MacArthur was certainly brave and he was convinced of the successful outcome, His operation was greatly aided by Mao's disengagement from the operation and by the deliberate undercutting of the North Korean People's Army by Stalin. It seems unthinkable to me that Stalin and Mao, armed with the information that they had, chose not to act. Just as before, with other mysteries of the Korean War, the simplest explanation tends to be the right one. Stalin and Mao refrained from acting not because of their ignorance, of which they did not suffer, but because they did not want to get involved. Stalin's support of Kim was shrinking, and he was focusing more and more on the political drive of his campaign, the plan to push the United States and the Chinese into conflict with one another. In Mao's case, the landings would have to be successful if he was to intervene and overturn the affiliations of the North Korean regime. 
Only after sufficient defeats would the Soviets' influence in Pyongyang be sufficiently expunged. When Kim realised his loneliness and he pleaded for direct Chinese aid, then and only then would the PRC take up the mantle of North Korea's defence, establish a new satellite and transform the war in the process. Indeed, MacArthur benefited from the fact that the most dangerous actors in the course of his planning didn't merely wish to remain aloof, they wanted him to succeed. MacArthur, in the words of the historian H.W. Brands, probably never read NSC 81, and if he did, he apparently took as mere advice its admonitions to avoid the risk of general war and keep the United States troops away from the border of China. MacArthur had his own ideas of how the war should be waged, and he was sure that they were better than those of armchair strategists thousands of miles away from the theatre of combat. Indeed, after having covered personalities and figures with so much more to them than the conventional historical record suggests, it's actually quite refreshing to then come to General Douglas MacArthur, an esteemed and accomplished commander who we first met all the way back in episode 2, if you can remember back that far. In that episode, we examined in brief what MacArthur had done in Japan since 1945, and how he came to view what occurred in Korea five years later as his best chance to go out in something of a blaze of glory. Policing post-war Japan, while he was arguably quite good at it, was not MacArthur's preferred pastime. Inventing creative new ways to crush a real enemy, now that was something he could get on board with. While the naval landing at Incheon had been heavily underlined in previous memorandums on American strategy, it was MacArthur who pushed for it the most intensely. In spite of all we've learned of the expectations of Stalin, Mao and even Kim Il-sung regarding a naval landing, MacArthur was adamant that the strength of Incheon was rooted in surprise. The very difficulties in launching the landings would commend the plan to its success, because the North Korean People's Army would never expect such an operation in such a place. MacArthur had advocated it since early July, if you remember, and he had co-named the plan Blue Hearts, but abandoned the idea when the North Korean People's Army advanced too slowly, only to take it back up again where the Northern advance picked up. It had been planned for mid-September by MacArthur from late July, and on the 9th of August, Truman granted his approval, spending the next month, as we have seen, diplomatically preparing the ground, largely by deterring the Chinese from intervening. For these reasons, it is highly unlikely that the Secretary of the Navy, of the Army and the Air Force journeyed to Tokyo on the 23rd of August with the express purpose of talking MacArthur out of his plan. Since Truman already approved of the plan by this point, it may even have been an effort to convince those senior members of Truman's administration who would have been sceptical of the plan's success. After listening to the objections of the different secretaries, MacArthur made his play for the dramatic. No one who was present would ever forget what he had now said, claimed the historian Michael Hickey, or the electric atmosphere of high drama pervading the room. Indeed, this was exactly how MacArthur wanted it. Puffing on his distinctive corncob pipe, he stood with his back to the map and symbolically discarded the script he was meant to read from. His arguments were as strategic as they were idealistic, as he boomed in a lengthy speech, but one which remains worthy of quotation. MacArthur said, The bulk of the Reds are committed around Walker's defence perimeter. The enemy, I am convinced, has failed to protect Inchon properly for defence. The very arguments you have made as to the impracticalities involved will tend to ensure, for me, the element of surprise, 
for the enemy commanderable reason that no one would be so brash as to make such an attempt. Surprise is the most vital element in war. The North Koreans would regard an Incheon landing as impossible. I could take them by surprise. My confidence in the Navy is complete. And in fact, I seem to have more confidence in the Navy than the Navy has in itself. The Navy's rich experience in staging the numerous amphibious landings under my command in the Pacific during the late war, frequently under somewhat similar difficulties, leaves me with little doubt on that score. Seizure of Incheon and Seoul will cut the enemy's supply line and seal off the entire southern peninsula. The vulnerability of the enemy is in his supply position. Every step southwards extends his transport lines and renders them more frail and subject to dislocation. By seizing Seoul, I would completely paralyse the fighting power of the troops that now face Walker. The only alternative to a stroke such as I propose will be the continuation of the savage sacrifice we are making at Pusan with no hope of relief in sight. Are you content to let our troops stay in that bloody perimeter like beef cattle in the slaughterhouse? Who will take responsibility for such a tragedy? Certainly not I. The prestige of the Western world hangs in the balance. Oriental lions are watching the outcome. It is plainly apparent that here in Asia is where the communist conspirators have elected to make their play for global conquest. The test is not in Berlin or Vienna, in London, Paris or Washington. It is here and now. We here fight Europe's war with arms, while there it is still confined to words. If we lose the war to communism in Asia, the fate of Europe will be gravely jeopardised. Win it, and Europe will probably be saved from war and stay free. Make the wrong decision here, the fatal decision of inertia, and we will be done. I can almost hear the ticking hand of destiny. We must act now or we will die. Inchon will not fail, Inchon will succeed, and it will save 100,000 lives. MacArthur, like his president in the months past, had laid down the gauntlet. It proved a decisive speech and put steel into the three secretaries as they returned home. Their boost in turn was a further boost to MacArthur, who pushed, as we have seen throughout the episode, for a new means by which the allies of the United States could have their fears assuaged, as the enemies of the United States could be deterred. In the next episode, we will return to the scene outside Inchon on the early morning of the 15th of September 1950. After months of preparations and false starts, here was the military initiative which so many key figures had been waiting for, and which one in particular so gravely feared. Inchon represented the death blow to Kim Il-sung's initial war aims, yet it also represented the watershed moment in the Korean War. After so many months of diplomatic planning and backroom theorising, the next few months were to prove the test of all these ideas and aims. Inchon was the launching pad which made all these ideas and aims and theories possible. Until next time, history friends, my name is Zach and you've been listening to the Korean War episode 34. Thanks for listening and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.